Okay, before we get into a little bit more of the pediatrics, specifically getting into cerebral palsy here, um, I just wanted to apologize for the poor quality of everything that goes on here. I'm sure this is incredibly boring and incredibly poor quality, but I'm hoping that it helps someone out there. It's definitely going to help me. All right, moving on to cerebral palsy, which is a disorder primarily of movement control and posture, but is also associated with cognitive and sensory associated problems resulting from a non-progressive lesion in an immature brain. And it can occur any time up to about two to three years of life. Um, in utero, in the prenatal period, near the time of delivery at the perinatal period, or within the first three years of life in the postnatal period. It's the leading cause of childhood disability with an incidence of two to three per 1,000 births. Risk factors uh, depend upon the age of when it happens. If we look at the prenatal risk factors, the majority of cerebral palsy, about 70 to 80% occur during the prenatal period. Um, risk factors include prenatal intracranial hemorrhage, as well as placental complications and gestational toxins, such as iodine deficiency, which can lead to diplegia, or organic mercury intoxication, as well as gestational teratogenic agents. Some congenital malformations of the brain and cerebral vascular occlusions during fetal life can occur as well. You can't forget the uh, torch infections as well, toxinoblasmosis, rubella, CMV, herpes. There are maternal causes as well, including seizures, hypothyroid, excuse me, hyperthyroidism, and mental retardation. For whatever reason, there are some socioeconomic factors that play into this, as well as reproductive inefficiency and prenatal hypoxic ischemic injury as, uh, uh, that may be a result of idiopathic or multiple pregnancies or maternal bleeding or maternal drug use. These prenatal factors may lead to premature birth or intrauterine growth restriction of both term and preterm infants. And the perinatal risk factors, uh, complications of prematurity are typically the, one of the leading causes of cerebral palsy. Birth at less than 32 weeks of gestation or low birth weight less than 2,500 grams. Prematurity remains the most common antecedent of cerebral palsy due to a combination of immaturity, fragile brain vasculature, physical stresses of immaturity that predispose children to compromise of cerebral blood flow and blood flow vessels in the watershed zones. There are also complications of a full-term infant, including placental previa, placental abruption, and meconium aspiration resulting in neonatal asphyxia. Hyperbilirubinemia can also cause this. It could be due to RH incompatibility or G6PD deficiency or ABO incompatibility, which results in cernicterus um, with the deposition of bilirubin in the cranial nerve nuclei and basal ganglia. There can also be difficult and traumatic delivery, which may lead to subdural hematoma, which causes mechanical trauma to the brain at birth and can result in uh, CP with spastic hemiplegia. Infection, seizures, bradycardia and hypoxia, and perinatal intracranial hemorrhage can also cause CP in the perinatal time frame. Postnatally, trauma remains one of the prominent factors, including falls, which are more common than child abuse, specifically shaken baby syndrome. Again, the retinal hemorrhages here are big for that. Uh, motor vehicle accidents can also occur. Toxins, such as heavy metals or lead or organophosphates, can also cause this. Stroke syndromes can also cause this, including sickle cell anemia, AVM rupture, and congenital heart disease. Infections and neoplastic disease, as well as anoxia, like, such as near-drowning experiences with anoxic encephalopathy or intracranial hemorrhage can also cause this. There are several classifications that we'll get into. The current methods try to incorporate a functional basis for classification. Cerebral palsy may manifest itself differently as the child ages. The modification, or excuse me, the modified neurological classification divide system or divides 
patients into spastic or pyramidal cerebral palsy, about 75%, dyskinetic or extrapyramidal cerebral palsy, and a mixed type. Spastic types of cerebral palsy account for about 75%, and account, um, <clears throat> excuse me, children with uh, CP exhibit significant upper motor neuron signs, such as muscle spasticity and hyperreflexia or clonus. They may have an extensor Babinski response, which is abnormal at greater than two years, and may present in addition to other persistent primitive reflexes. The spastic group is divided into five subtypes that are named by the parts of the body that are involved. This includes spastic monoplegia, which is rarely seen. It's an isolated upper or lower extremity involvement, usually a mild clinical presentation. Spastic diplegia, which is the most common type of CP, often it comes from premature infants that develops uh, cerebral palsy, and 75% of them are spastic diplegias. It primarily affects the lower extremities much greater than the upper extremities with a history of prematurity. Infants clinically present with a history of early hypotonia followed by the development of spasticity. Developmental delays um, commonly in the area of gross motor function are also noted. There may be a history of intraventricular hemorrhage, which is typical, especially from 28 to 32 weeks of gestation. MRI may show periventricular leukomalacia, or post-hemorrhagic poroencephaly. This is a big one here. I've seen this question asked multiple times. Spastic diplegia, prematurity, periventricular leukomalacia. That's a big one. Lower extremity spasticity is caused by damage to pyramidal fibers within the internal capsule. Muscles that are affected in, uh, typically include hip flexors, adductors, and gastrocnemius muscles. Contractors result secondary to long-term spasticity. You may also see a diplegic gait pattern that includes a classic scissoring and toe walking. There may be some mild quad coordination impairments in the result of upper extremities with upper motor neuron findings in the lower extremities. Ocular findings include strabismus and visual field deficits, and seizures can also occur, as well as cognitive impairment. The third category is spastic triplegia, which involves three extremities with bilateral lower extremities and one upper extremity classically affected. The spasticity results in the involved limbs with mild coordination deficits in the uninvolved limbs. Characteristic scissoring and toe walking is also observed. Spastic quadriplegia is the fourth type. All extremities are involved. There is a pattern of truncal hypotonia with appendicular hypertonia or total body hypertonia existing. It's often the result of a difficult delivery with evidence of perinatal asphyxia. Approximately 50% have prenatal origin and 30% perinatal and 20% postnatal. MRI in the preterm child shows a periventricular leukomalacia as well. So spastic quadriplegia and spastic diplegia have some overlap there. Again, the periventricular leukomalacia is one. It affects all limbs. Diplegia tends to be, um, like I said, the lower extremities are greatly affected more than the upper extremities. In the spastic quadriplegia, you may also have an opisthonic posturing, which may begin in um, infancy, which often presents in the severely involved. You may also have oromotor dysfunction, pseudomolar involvement, and a risk of aspiration with feeding difficulties that may require feeding tube placement. Cognitive involvement results in large percentage of mental retardation. Seizures in about 50% of affected children and spasticity and persistent primitive reflexes contribute to making these ch children the most severely involved with those with uh, cerebral palsy. The last type of the spastic is spastic hemiplegia. They affect one side of the body more than the other, usually uh, the arm, one arm more than the leg. About 70 to 90 percent are congenital, and 10 to 30 percent are acquired secondary to vascular, inflammatory, or traumatic causes. 
MRI tends to reveal a unilateral lesion in 66% of the cases. In term infants, the cause is usually secondary to prenatal events. In premature infants, asymmetric periventricular leukomalacia is also common, commonly seen. Um, hemiparesis is usually evident by four to six months of age, with hypotonia being the first um, indicator. Other indicators include premature preferential hand preference or dominance, and there is a slightly higher incidence of right-sided involvement. Average age of walking is 24 months, which is about 12 months longer than the regular age of walking. And cranial nerves may also be involved, leading to some facial weakness. There is some growth retardation of the affected side uh, with associated spasticity. There's also sensory deficits on the ipsilateral side occurring at about 68%. There are some visual field deficits in 25% of hemiplegics, cognitive impairments in 28%, and seizures in 33%. I don't think these percentages are super important, but just, uh, just to remember that visual deep field deficits, cognitive impairments, and seizures are common in cerebral palsy. There may be also be some perceptual motor deficits that are common, causing some learning disabilities. So that's the uh, spastic type. Um, the dyskinetic types of cerebral palsy are characterized by abnormal extrapyramidal movement patterns, secondary to dysregulation of tone, defects in postural control, and coordination deficits. These are some of the typical terms that we would see, such as athetosis, which is a slow, riding, involuntary movement, particularly in the distal extremities. Chorea is abrupt, irregular, jerky movements occurring in the, um, in the head, neck, or extremities. Choreoathetoid is a combination of athetosis and choreoform movements, generally large amplitude involuntary movements. And it predominantly favors athetoid movement than, uh, as compared to the chorea movement. Dystonia is a slow, rhythmic movement with tone changes generally found in the trunk and extremities associated with abnormal posturing. And ataxia is an uncoordinated movement often associated with nystagmus, dysmetria, and a wide-based gait. Classic movement patterns emerge sometime between one and three years of age. Severely affected children have persistent hypotonia. Movement patterns typically increase with stress or purposeful activity. Uh, during sleep, muscle tone is normal and involuntary movement stops. There may be some pseudomolar involvement uh, which presents with dysarthria, dysphagia, drooling, and oromotor dyskinesis. These children tend to have normal intelligence 78% of the time. There is a high incidence of sensory neural hearing loss, which has been associated with hyperbilirubinemia and neonatal jaundice. Then there are some mixed types as well. Um, the mixed type of CP exhibit patterns of both spastic and dyskinetic types. The most common mixed type is spastic athetoid. So you have a predominant dyskinetic movement pattern with an underlying component of spasticity. And there are some modified neurological classification system that divides patients into further categories. So there's a chart on page 785 that talks about the classification of cerebral palsy that breaks it up again into spastic, dyskinetic, and mixed types. That's basically a summary of what I just went over. And there's a chart on page 786 with major categories of cerebral palsy as well. Um, let's, let's review this a little bit. So the spastic type, which is 75% of all the cases, um, in hemiplegic, most cases are congenital. There's a focal perinatal injury, and there may be infarction and vascular distribution. Uh, ambulation usually occurs by two years of age. And again, there's the associated findings that we saw before. Arm more involved than leg. Failure to use the involved hand, speech is preserved, 
There may be an isometric crawl. Refractory error may have hemianopsia. They can have seizures, can have mental retardation or no retardation, and there may be a cortical sensory deficit. Diplegic, which is the most common type of cerebral palsy in premature infants, can have ischemia in the periventricular region. Again, the periventricular leukomalacia is seen. Most diplegics ambulate but require some sort of assistive device. And then there's the quadriplegic, which tends to happen more from a major hypoxic event like perinatal asphyxia. There may be a parasagittal cerebral injury uh, with injury to bilateral cortical zones or focal and multifocal ischemic brain lesions. A fourth of these are independent in ambulation with modified ADL, half require assisted ambulation and assisted ADL, and a fourth are completely disabled. Again, you can check out the chart on page 786 for further information on that. There's also some review of the dyskinetic type and the mixed type. Um, the dyskinetic type, about a half of the children attain walking, most of them after three years of age. Upper extremity function is adequate for ADLs, and half of the children are non-ambulatory and dependent in ADLs. In the mixed type, as far as ambulation, it depends on the classification. One of the classifications that's often used and I've seen tested multiple times before is the gross motor, gross motor function classification system, or GMFCS. It's a functionally based system to standardize gross motor function in the cerebral palsy child. Level one tends to uh, level one is a qualification where they walk without restrictions and limitations are in more advanced gross motor skills. So these are people that don't need assistive devices; they're able to essentially function fairly normally. Level two can also walk without assistive device, but there may be some limitations walking outdoor and in the community. Level three requires uh, assisted mobility devices with limitations walking outdoors and in community. Level four has self-mobility with limitations. They typically are transported or use of power mobility outdoors and in the community. And level five, they are completely dependent on self-mobility on others, severely limited, um, even with the use of assistive device. I would recommend Googling um, an image search for GMFCS classifications. It kind of breaks it up into good things there. In fact, I think I'll do that right now because there is a there are several good images out there. One of the things that I like to see from these, so with a GMFCS of one, they're essentially able to walk up and down stairs by themselves as well. Um, carrying boxes, things like that. GMFCS2, they're able to walk out um, in the community fairly well without assistance, but they tend to use tend to need the use of handrails going up and down stairs. GMFCS is either ambulation with assistive device or self-propulsion in a wheelchair. Um, and the assistive device tends to be something less limiting, like a like loft strand crutches. GMF, uh, GMFCS of four is pretty limited walking. They need to be able to, they can walk with, an, with a walker when it's not too, um, over, over short distances and, and level surfaces. And they can also be fairly independent with the use of powered mobility. And GMFCS5 is where they need someone else to do it all the time. Moving on to some of the gait abnormalities. Spastic diplegia is very common where you get scissoring gait pattern with hips flexed and adducted and knees flexed with valgus. Ankles are also in equinus. They see a, you see toe walking. In spastic hemiplegia, you have weak hip flexion and ankle dorsiflexion, overactive posterior tibialis. You may also see hip hiking or hip circumduction to be able to clear that side. 
uh, supinated foot and stance phase and upper extremity posturing. There's also a crouch gait where they have tight hip flexors and tight hamstrings with weak quadriceps. There may be excessive dorsiflexion in both diplegic and quadriplegics. A common question that's asked is, will my child walk? It's usually the most frequent question asked by parents of a newly diagnosed cerebral palsy child. Several factors are relevant. The best indicator of how a child will do is how the child is doing currently. So with sitting, there have been studies that show that if independent sitting occurs by age 2, prognosis for ambulation is good. For, crawl, for those that are crawling, it's felt that the ability to crawl on hands and knees by 1.5 to 2.5 years is a good prognostic sign. And persistence of three or more primitive reflexes at 18 to 24 months is a poor prognostic indicator. Prognosis also depends on the type of cerebral palsy. There are some associated deficits, um, such as mental retardation. The incidence of associated disabilities in cerebral palsy varies. The overall incidence of mental retardation is approximately 50%. You may also see microcephaly, seizures, and severe neuromuscular dysfunction that are associated with risk of intellectual de deficits. Spastic quadriplegic type has the highest rate of mental retardation, while spastic hemiplegia and diplegic types have the lowest. Seizures occur in approximately 50% of patients, again, more common in quadriplegics. As far as visual deficits go, there are deficits in extraocular movements and vision are, are also common in cerebral palsy. Strabismus is the most frequent visual deficit at 25 to 60% of all cases with the highest rate in spastic diplegics and quadriplegics. You may also see esotropia more frequently than exotropia. Paralysis of conjugate upward gaze is clinical, as a clinical manifestation of cernicterus. Nystagmus is present in the ataxic type. You may see a homonymous hemianopsia occurring in hemiparetic cerebral palsy, and there can also be retinopathy of prematurity, which can occur in preterm infants. There may also be some sensory neural hearing impairment, which occurs about in 12% of patients, with connectoris being the most common cause. There are also developmental language disorders of verbal and written communication. After about one and a half to two years, insults of the dominant hemisphere lead to aphasia. Although most children show significant recovery from aphasia uh, acquired before eight to 10 years, they rarely regain premorbid levels. There can also be defective speech results from pseudobulbar palsy and supranuclear spastic paralysis or dyskinetic incoordination of the muscles innervated by the lower cranial nerves. Speaking in two or three word sentences by age three is a good indication of intellectual potential. So we've seen a few of those. Speaking in two to three words by age three, sitting independently by age two, and crawling on hands and knees between one and a half to two and a half years are good, whereas persistence of three or more primitive reflexes 18 to 24 months out is poor. There are some respiratory impairments that may also occur in cerebral palsy children with decreased vital capacity and aerobic working capacity seen in both spastic and athetoid types. You may also have a restrictive pulmonary disease which accompanies scoliosis. Some behavioral disorders also occur, um, such as attention deficit, distractibility, disturbances of impulse control, and overt hyperkinesis. Behavior disorders also include true emotional lability as part of an organic pseudobulbar palsy consisting of dysarthria, drooling, and poor chewing. Poor peer acceptance can lead to negative self-image. School problems, depression, and anger may be exacerbated during normal periods of transition, such as going from preschool to kindergarten and in early adolescence. The more mildly physically involved child may have more difficulty and need more psychosocial uh, support. There are several gastrointestinal problems that can occur as well. Uh, reflux, 
often requires medical management. Constipation is exaggerated by mobility and abnormal diet and fluid intake. Uh, management is usually of bowel and bladder dysfunction is usually related to dysfunction of the central neuromotor control and the cognitive development status of the child. There may also be some difficulty swallowing, sucking, and chewing. Motor incoordination is manifested by poor lip closure, retraction and thrusting of the tongue, and decreased tongue movements. Feeding difficulties can contribute to malnutrition and aspiration. Dysphagia evaluation, modified barium swallow, and fiber optic endoscopic evaluation may be needed. A cutaneous gastric tube may be necessary in certain issues. There are often dental issues as well, including malocclusion, enamel dysgenesis, secondary to palatal distortions, and abnormal oral motor reflexes. They're also at risk for cavities due to poor handling of secretions and food, as well as chronic drooling. Medications like scopolamine patches can be used to address the problem of drooling. I want to speak a little bit about the prognosis. About 90% of children with cerebral palsy survive into adulthood. Immobility and severe or profound retardation uh, reduce life expectancy. Positive factors for independent living include regular schooling, completion of secondary school, independent mobility and ability to travel beyond the house, good hand skills, living in a small community, and having spasticity as the motor dysfunction. Mental retardation, seizures, and wheelchair dependency are factors that reduce the likelihood of independent living. Positive prognostic indicators for employment include mild physical involvement, good family support, vocational training, and good employment contacts. The Individuals with Disability Education Act um, is a federal law that mandates early intervention for children who demonstrate developmental delay in the first three years of life. Early intervention is a system of programs that work with the infant or toddler and family to optimize the development of the disabled child in society and enhance the family's capacity to meet their child's needs. PTOT and speech are part of the required developmental services that must be provided. There is no evidence that early intervention prevents disability or produces changes in brain organization. However, there is evidence that these strategies minimize secondary complications and offer support to the families. There are some therapeutic exercise methods. Various techniques are are utilized during PT and OT. Boboth is the most widely used. It's also known as neurodevelopmental treatment, and the goal is to normalize tone, inhibit abnormal primitive reflex patterns, and facilitate uh, automatic reactions with subsequent normal development. Phelps uses extensive bracing withdrawing support as motion is performed with a minimum of tension, overflow, and substitution. Deaver uses extensive bracing, limiting all but two motions of an extremity. Domin and Delicato use a series of patterns repeated many times during the day in an attempt to train cerebral dominance and normalization of function. Rude emphasizes sensory and motor systems equally, activating muscles through sensory receptors. Voda European method activates postural development <clears throat> and equilibrium reactions to guide normal development. And conductive education has the re- rehabilitation through learning, a system in which a child with motor dysfunction is expected to be proactive participant and learner um, in overcoming this functional or the disability. The process is facilitated by a conductor who is trained to integrate the education and rehabilitation needs of the individuals with goal-oriented group activities. Spasticity management is a big part of what we do in rehab, especially in the cerebral palsy patient. 
The mainstay of treatment is through a combination of comprehensive PT and OT programs, including modalities, therapeutic exercise, range of motion, casting and splinting, um, as well as medications, bracing, um, nerve and motor point injections, and at times can include surgery. Interventions such as a nerve or motor point blocks and chemodenervation may be performed to reduce muscle tone in specific areas of the body. More aggressive measures include surgery. There's a chart of medications that we'll go through in just a minute on page 794. There's, there's plenty that are available, and we'll go through that. Uh, bracing. You want to try and use tone-reducing AFOs <clears throat> that aid in gait by controlling the equinus or equinovarus deformity. They're designed to decrease abnormal reflexes. There can be full-length foot plates that extend past the toe to discourage toe flexion. Uh, metatarsal support also discourages stimulation to a particularly reflexogenic area of the foot. They are most effective during gait, but use during rest helps, to, helps prevent contractures. CAFOs can add direct control over the knees, um, over knee flexion and extension, as well as varus and valgus, but add bulk and weight. And HKFOs can add direct control over hip positioning, uh, but they do not significantly improve gait, <clears throat> but they do decrease deformity. For nerve and motor point blocks, um, these are indicated for treatment of spasticity affecting specific muscle groups, and they are commonly done to decrease adductor hamstring and gastrocnemia spasticity to correct the scissoring gait pattern and equinovarus foot deformity, as well as to uh, avoid development of contractures. Phenol and alcohol are typically used for the chemoneurolysis, uh, both of which are neurolytic. They can cause, or they cause a chemical neurectomy that is effective for about three to six months. Distal regeneration from the site of injection results in the loss of effect four to six months, <clears throat> after four to six months, which is less for motor points. An electrical stimulator is often used to identify the point uh, for, of proper location for injection. Some of the benefits include prevention of deformity and improved function by facilitation of therapies and orthoses. Some of the disadvantages include temporary sensory dysthesias, um, <clears throat> especially in the tibial and upper extremity nerves. Permanent weakness leading to deformity can also occur. After this procedure, an aggressive stretching and gait training program is indicated. Some of the expected effects of specific nerve blocks in the lower extremities. When talking about the obturator nerve, we would get reduction in adductor tone, diminished scissoring gait, and promotion of passive adduction, abduction as a means by protecting, as a means of protecting hip joint integrity. Sciatic branch blocks to the medial hamstrings can lessen crouch gaits and internal rotation deformities. Tibial blocks can diminish plantar flexion and allow better tolerance of AFOs, and femoral nerve blocks can diminish spastic recurvatum. Botox injections can also be used. Uh, <clears throat> botulinum toxin affects the neuromuscular junction, essentially the same goal of reducing muscle tone. Specific muscles can be targeted with bo uh, botulinum toxin injections. It has been used extensively for blepharospasm of ocular muscles and to treat torticollis. It acts by irreversibly blocking the presynaptic release of acetylcholine into the neuromuscular junction. Given as an intramuscular injection, the onset of effect takes 24 to 72 hours and peaks in about two weeks. I've actually told most of my patients the rule of three. It takes about three days to take effect, three weeks to peak, and lasts for about three months. Um, advantages over nerve blocks include less technically demanding on clinicians, does not cause uh, dysesthesia, 
and can decrease injection site pain and discomfort. <clears throat> as far as the mechanism of action, I've seen it asked more specifically than irreversibly blocking the presynaptic release of acetylcholine. I've seen questions about the snare proteins, it cleaves the snare proteins, specifically the SNAP25. I've seen all of those questions before. <clears throat> Going over the chart of medications, there are several medications listed. Most common that we have is baclofen. <clears throat> it's a GABA receptor, it affects the GABA receptors in the spinal cord, it's a GABA agonist. It causes a decrease in release of excitatory neurotransmitters from afferent terminals. You can dose as low as 2.5 milligrams once, twice, or three times a day. Typically, the max dose is described as 20 milligrams four, uh, three times a day or four times a day. I've seen it go up to as much as 30 milligrams four times a day. The side effects include weakness, fatigue, confusion, and constipation. It may lower the seizure threshold, and you may have some withdrawal. People tend to get um, itchy when this happens. There's some irritability and their spasms can increase. It's drug of choice for MS and um, spinal cord injury and the oral form can be given when there is an acute baclofen pump failure. Speaking of baclofen pumps, intrathecal baclofen is a very common uh, mode of spasticity management in these patients as well. The test dose is about 50 micrograms and the pump dose can go from 27 to 800 micrograms a day similar side effects. The big thing here for this is that abrupt withdrawal may precipitate seizure or hallucinations or cardiorespiratory arrest. This can actually, this can actually prove fatal at times. This is um, one of those true rehab emergencies is a baclofen pump failure or acute intrathecal baclofen withdrawal. Oral baclofen withdrawal can also cause some of these, but it's not as bad as intrathecal. Dantrolene is another one that can be used. It acts at the intrafusal and extrafusal skeletal fibers. It causes a decrease of release of calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. You start at about 0.5 milligrams per, kilo, per kilogram twice a day with a max of 12 milligrams per, uh, per kilogram per day, up to 400 milligrams. It can cause weakness, fatigue, drowsiness, and diarrhea. It can cause hepatotoxicity. Um, you want to monitor with frequent liver tests. It notes here that it is the drug of choice for spasticity of cerebral origin. This is one that typically I see clinicians moving away from, mostly due to the fear of hepatotoxicity. Benzodiazepines are another one. Um, they act at receptors of the brainstem, reticular formation of spinal cord. It causes an increase in GABA binding, uh, potentiation, and presynaptic inhibition. You can start with 1 to 2 milligrams twice a day and increase up to 20 milligrams four times a day. Drowsiness, fatigue, impaired memory, and recall also happen. You can also, uh, side effects include uh, building a tolerance and dependence and CNS depression. There can also be withdrawal with this. Clonidine, I haven't used too much for spasticity, but it is an agonist in brainstem and substantial gelatinosa of the spinal cord and inhibits short latency of motor neurons with an augmentation of presynaptic inhibition. You start with 0.1 milligram patch for seven days. You can have bradycardia, hypotension, and depression. Blood pressure and pulse monitoring must be done. Tizanidine is one that's often used. It's an adrener it acts at the adrenergic receptors, both spinally and supraspinally. It prevents the release of excito excitatory amino acids from presynaptic terminal of spinal interneurons. It may facilitate glycine, an inhibitory neurotransmitter. 
You start with two to four milligrams at bedtime, increase two milligrams every two to four days with a max of 36 milligrams. You gotta watch out for the blood pressure on this one. Um, you can get some orthostatic hypotension. Botox we've talked about and phenol we have talked about. Moving on to some of the surgical procedures, it may be indicated to improve function and appearance and to prevent um, or correct deformities. Surgical measures include neurosurgical procedures, which may be a, dorsal, a selective dorsal rhizotomy or intrathecal baclofen pump placement, as well as orthopedic interventions such as soft tissue releases, tendon lengthening, tendon transfers, joint fusions, and rotations or angulations. Surgery to improve ambulation remains problematic. Some of the neurosurgical procedures, uh, such as a selective uh, posterior rhizotomy and intrathecal baclofen pump placement, have been employed for tone management. For the rhizotomy, it's designed to decrease the excitatory sensory input from the motor neuron, thereby decreasing spasticity. The procedure consists of a laminectomy and exposure of the cauda equina. The dorsal roots are electrically stimulated, and various criteria are used for determining which parts of the root contain more fibers involved with abnormal reflexes. And these rootlets are subsequently severed. This technique allows for decreased tone without subsequent sensation loss. Patient selection criteria include lack of dystonia and or athetosis, preservation of functional strength, independent of spasticity, presence of selective motor control, younger age, typically three to eight years old, and lack of significant joint contractures and few previous orthopedic procedures, as well as cognitive preservation, motivation, and positive family supports are important. Negative effects include hypotonia, weakness, sensory changes in bladder dysfunction, hip dislocation, lordosis, possibly secondary to sparing of L1, and after surgery, the children require extensive physical therapy and occupational therapy to recover from postoperative weakness and to maximize functional gains. Poor candidates for isotomy include, include children with poor head and trunk control and children who use spasticity for functional purposes. Intrathecal baclofen pump placement, also see the spasticity. Uh, you can also see the spasticity section that we'll go over later. It's a reprogrammable pump that delivers baclofen directly to the intrathecal space of the spinal cord, equivalent to chemical uh, chemically adjusted, adjustable rhizotomy. It allows for much lower doses of baclofen to be used to minimize the side effects, but it's required to be filled and maintained on a regular basis. They need to have close follow-up and be good follow-up patients. In, these, in the use of the intrathecal baclofen pumps, I've seen more benefit in the lower extremities than the upper extremities. Um, it's not exactly sure why that's happening, but it makes you think that there may be a gravitational effect on the medication. Some orthopedic procedures can be performed as well on either soft tissue or bony tissue. Soft tissue procedures are done at the muscle or tendon level and consist of either releases, lengthenings, or transfers. Bony uh, procedures consist of either joint fusions, uh, such as at the ankle or spine, or osteotomies, such as derotational osteotomy of the femur or tibia, and angulation osteotomy of the femur. I've, I've recommended both of these for patients in the past. It tends to happen more uh, with the, the tendon lengthening in patients that are growing rapidly. And for those with the osteotomies, those that tend to be more uh, wheelchair um, dependent. Rhizotomy and orthopedic surgery in combination are often required to gain the greatest improvement in gait, and gait lab analysis may help in determining the, uh, the appropriate intervention. It's important to talk about aging and cerebral palsy a little bit. In general, health-related problems occur at about the same rate as in regular populations. One of the most common complaints is neck pain. This is probably the Pain in general is probably the most common complaint in adults with cerebral palsy. Neck pain occurs in about 50% of spastic patients and 75% in the dyskinetic group. 
Scoliosis has a much higher incidence in non-ambulatory individuals. Data may suggest that individuals with cerebral palsy are capable of near-normal reproduction, and there is no correlation between degree of disability and level of sexual activity. Predictions of successful and unsuccessful employment include IQ level, ambulation level, speech, and degree of hand function. To be competitive in the workforce or able to work, you want to have an IQ above 80 with ambulation with or without assistive device. Uh, you want your speech ranging from hard to understand normal and hand use from normal to requiring assistance. For sheltered employment, IQ between 50 and 79, ambulation with or without assistive device. Uh, same requirements for speech and hand use. Hard to understand to normal and normal to requiring assistance. Those that are unemployable are those that are less than 50 IQ, non-ambulatory and non-oral and require assistance using hands. Concluding the cerebral palsy section, there are, there's a table on page 798 that shows reflex development. Um, really quickly we'll run through this. The moral reflex or the startle reflex is the feeling of falling with a sudden neck extension. Um, it can also occur with loud noises. You tend to get shoulder abduction uh, plus shoulder elbow and finger flexion followed by arm flexion and, ab and adduction. It goes away about four to six months and persists in CNS uh, pathology. Rooting is where you stroke the lips or around the mouth and, it, and the, uh, the baby would move their mouth towards the stimulus in search of the nipple. It ends around four months and it's diminished in CNS pathology, but may persist in C uh, but it can also persist in CNS pathology. Positive supporting, uh, the stimulus is light pressure or weight bearing on a plantar surface, and the legs extend for partial support of weight body of, of body weight. It's about it, uh, it suppresses about three to five months and replaced with volitional weight bearing with support. This is basically in preparation for walking. The asymmetric tonic neck reflex, ATNR, is where you have the head turning. To, if you turn the head to one side, the extremities extend on the face side and flex on the occiput side. This is the fencer position. It suppresses at about six to seven months and is an oblig obligatory response abnormal at any age, persists in static encephalopathy. The symmetric tonic neck reflex um, is where if you go into neck flexion, your arms flex and your neck extends. And if you go into neck extension, your arms extend and your legs flex. Let me repeat that. Symmetric tonic neck reflex. Neck flexion, arms flex, legs extend. Neck extension, arms extend, legs flex. I think I said the first part wrong there. It, occurs about, uh, it goes away about six to seven months. Palmer grasp is where if you put your finger in their palm, they squeeze it. This goes away about four to six months. Uh, plantar grasp is pressure on the soles of the metatarsal heads causes flexion of all the soles. And this persists until about 12 to 14 months when walking is achieved. Autonomic neonatal walking, which is if placed on a vertical support plantar contact and passive tilting of body toward the side, of, uh, forward side to side, they can cause an alternating autonomic or automatic steps of support that goes away about three to four months. And there are a few more that are listed here that are not as common. Uh, but that basically sums up the spina bifida, or excuse me, the cerebral palsy. And next we'll be talking about spina bifida. Before moving on to spina bifida, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about cerebral palsy and spina bifida management in general. Um, in the clinics that I've worked in for this, I think it's really interesting. These tend to be multidisciplinary clinics involving multiple different uh, providers, not just physicians, but therapists, um, counselors, social workers, everyone involved. It's really neat to be able to see neurosurgery, neurology, 
um, rehab, uh, orthopedic surgery, everyone get involved in the care of the patients. It's really, it's really cool to be able to arrange that as well. Going on to spina bifida, uh, sometimes this can be referred to as myelodysplasia. It represents a group of neural tube defects caused by congenital dysraphic malformations of the vertebral column and spinal cord. And it's the most frequent spinal cord disorder in children. It's the second most common childhood abnormality with disability disease after uh, cerebral palsy and is known as myelodysplasia, which is not to be confused with bone marrow, with the bone marrow syndrome of, with the same name. Essentially, this breaks down to a spinal cord injury at birth. The, uh, the highest incidence occurs in the British Isles, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland, and the lowest in Japan. In the United States, the rate of neural tube defects was about 0.6 per 1,000 births in 1989 with higher incidence in families of Irish, German, and Hispanic ancestry and lower among Asians and Pacific Islanders. Both polycentric inheritance and environmental influences have been proposed. Increased familial incidence and recurrence rate and slightly greater number of affected individuals than uh, affected females than males points to genetic ideology. There's a recurrence rate at 2.5 to 5% after the birth of one child with spina bifida and doubles after two affected children. Several environmental factors have been implicated, including low socioeconomic class, mid-spring conception, maternal obesity, in utero exposure to anticonvulsant drugs such as valproic acid and carbamazepine, and maternal febrile illness. So that's uh, the... Anticonvulsant drugs is one I've seen tested, valproic acid and carbamazepine, particularly valproic acid. And studies have demonstrated that folic acid, 0.4 milligrams daily, should be taken periconceptually and during early pregnancy, but significantly reduces the occurrence and recurrence of neural tube defects. This is one that I've seen tested multiple times as well. It should be one that everyone has ingrained. It's recommended 0.4 milligrams daily for any female of reproductive age. There are several theories about the pathogenesis of neural tube defects relate, uh, that tend to relate to embryonic development of the CNS. Neurulation of the anterior and posterior neuropores occurs during the third to fourth week after conception. The post-neurulation phase takes place during uh, weeks four to seven post-conception. Defects occur during this phase, our, covered, our skin-covered lesion. Normal neural tube closure starts in the third week of gestation from the mid-cervical level and proceeds in both the cephalad and caudad directions. The defect of neural tube closure is thought to occur around day 26 and accounts for most lesions through mid-lumbar. The more distal caudal cell mass forms between days 26 to 30, eventually resulting in formation of the central canal and the embryonic tail. Caudal regression with rostral extension resulting in fusion with the neural tube results in formation in the spinal cord by day 53. Lesions of the lumbosacral level occur before day 53. You can make a prenatal, a prenatal diagnosis with, with material, uh, maternal serum measurement of alpha-fetal protein and acetylcholinesterase and the maternal serum and amniotic fluid and fetal ultrasound are methods to, of prenatal diagnosis. AFP is reliable in 80% of open neural tube def defects in weeks 13 to 15. This is part of the triple screen or quad screen that's, uh, quad screen that's typically used uh, nowadays. Amniocentesis. Done by week 16 to 18 is nearly 100% accurate for detecting elevated amniotic fluid AFP. Amniocentesis does not detect uh, closed neural tube defects without leakage of fetal CSF. I don't think amniocentesis is used as often anymore. I think there were some risk factors that came along with it. And what's coming on more frequently is the idea of uh, free-floating chromosomes in the blood. I don't know if it works as well for neural tube defects. 
but it's replaced some of the other testing as well, or at the very least added to those tests. Fetal ultrasound between 16 to 24 weeks gestation is reported to have greater than 90% reliability. There are uh, two major types of spina bifida occulta. Excuse me, there are two major types. There is spina bifida occulta and spina bifida cystica. There's a table on page 801 that goes through a lot of this, and we may hit on some of these as well. Uh, spina bifida occulta is a dysraphism that affects primarily the vertebrae. The neural and meningeal elements are not herniated to the surface. A frequent sign in 50% of children of the presence of a pigmented nevus, angioma, hirsute patch, dimple, or dermal sinus in the overlying skin. Spina bifida occulta usually occurs in the lumbar sacral or sacral segments, and unlike the cystic formation, spina bifida occulta is not associated with Arnold, Arnold Chiari malformation. So there you go. Spina bifida occulta, not with Arnold, Arnold Chiari malformation. Spina bifida cystica includes meningocele, myelomeningocele, and myelocele, and other cystic lesions. In spina bifida cystica, contents of the spinal canal herniate through the posterior vertebral opening, and the term spina bifida aperta refers to any neural tube defect lesion in which the deformity is open to the environment. So all of these posterior elements of the spine have a failure to fusion in both spina bifida occulta and all categories of the spina bifida cystica. Meningocele is the protruding sac that contains meninges and spinal fluid. Myelomeningocele is a protruding sac that contains meninges, spinal cord, and spinal fluid. And a myelocele is a cystic cavity that is in front of the anterior wall of the spinal cord. So some of the clinical signs and course um, can be discerned. The clinical signs can be discerned by careful examination in the newborn nursery. Motor and sensory, motor and sensory deficits uh, vary according to the level and extent of the spinal cord involvement. Motor paralysis is usually of the lower motor neuron type, and sensory uh, deficit is present in the dermatomes that would be innervated by the defective spinal segments and nerve roots. So according to this chart, uh, about in spina bifida occulta, about 50% of the children have that sign that we talked about. In meningocele's, there may be with or without intact skin at the side of the sac, and incomplete skin coverage leads to leakage of the CSF. Myelomeningocele is associated with Arnold Chiari malformation and can be complicated by hydrocephalus in over 90% of the, of the cases, with or without intact skin at the site. Some of the clinical symptoms of spina bifida and colta, there are no neurological deficits, and is rarely associated with sacral lipoma and tethered cord, therefore these children must be followed. Uh, for meningocele, the absence, uh, in the absence of underlying malformation, neurological signs are, are normal, but children must be followed. Uh, meningocele occurs in, about, in less than 10% of cases of spina bifida cystica, and in myelomeningocele, there is motor paralysis, sensory deficits, neurogenic bowel, and bladder. Spina bifida occulta tends to occur more at the lumbosacral or sacral region, most commonly L5 and S1. Meningocele, with meningocele, 70%, 75% of the lesions affect the lumbar and lumbar sacral segments. Um, same with myelomeningocele and a myelocele. Spina bifida occulta is normal variant approximately 5 to 10% of the population. Meningocele occurs in less than 10% of cases of spina bifida uh, cystica, and myelomeningocele affects an overwhelming majority of the group with spina bifida cystica.
There is some segmental innervation that goes along with this and can be seen by different levels. There's a chart on page 802. This essentially follows along with the levels of dysfunction in a typical spinal cord injury. So if, uh, if you look at T6 to T12, you tend to have some abnormalities in trunk flexion, um, abdominals, lower trunk extensors. You can have complete leg paralysis, kyphosis, scoliosis. Um, going down L1 through L3, you might start getting some iliopsoas, hip flexors, hip adductors, quadriceps, knee extension with early hip dislocation, hip flexion, scoliosis, lordosis, knee flexion contractures, equinus foot, bowel and bladder dysfunction. L4 to 5, you start getting a lot more of the uh, pelvic girdle, hamstrings, um, tibialis, plantar flexion, and toe extensors with later hip, hip dislocation. Um, S1 to 2 may have some bowel and bladder dysfunction, pes cavus of the foot, and S3 to 4 also have bowel and bladder dysfunction with cavus foot and clawing of the toes to intrinsic muscle denervation. Some of the associated complications of spina bifida. Arnold Chiari malformation type 2, which is defined as downward displacement of the medulla and brainstem through the foramen magnum with associated kinking of the brainstem. It's present in almost all cases, about 80 to 90% of myelomeningocele, and is complicated by hydrocephalus in over 90% of cases. Hydrocephalus itself is usually present at birth and becomes symptomatic during the first week. More than 80% of children require ventricular peritoneal shunting with revision. Infection is the most common complication, followed by obstruction. Spontaneous arrest of hydrocephalus occurs uh, in 50% by 15 years, although prophylactic re shunt removal is contraindicated. The presence of hydrocephalus correlates with spinal defect, thoracic, uh, with the thoracic greater than lumbar, greater than sacral. You can also have vasomotor changes over the involved area, charco joints, osteoporosis, malformations of the forebrain and hindbrain, which may require decompression for symptomatic to minimize progression. Tethered cord is another one that we frequently talk about, which is an abnormal attachment of spinal cord at the distal end. Uh, Retethering occurs in 10 to 50%, and typical signs and symptoms include increased weakness, scoliosis, pain, orthopedic deformity, and urological dysfunction. Benign lumbosacral tumors, including lipoma and fibrolipoma, can also be seen. Diastomidomyelia, <clears throat> or sagittal cleavage, divisions of the spinal cord, which uh, are usually associated with a bony spur. Syringomyelia can also occur, um, usually in the cervical spine. And presenting symptoms include deterioration of neurological function, pain and temperature deficits, loss of motor function, especially in the upper extremities, increased spasticity, and hyperreflexia and pain. MRI is best to evaluate if syringomyelia is expected. Scoliosis, kyphosis, central respiratory dysfunction, um, discoordination, impaired visual function, malformation of the urinary system, including renal hyperplasia, horseshoe kidney, solitary kidney, urethral and lower tract anomalies. Uh, skin breakdown and urinary dysfunction can also occur. Urinary dysfunction occurs with greater than 90% of myelomeningocele, uh, which will have neurogenic bladder. Fewer than 10% have normal urinary control. T10 to L2 tend to have a sympathetic adrenergic innervation. Um, S2 to S4 have parasympathetic cholinergic innervation, and S2 to S5 has to have somatic innervation through the pudendal plexus. The disturbed bladder sensation interferes with the perception of bladder filling. Hypertonic or spastic bladder occurs most common in thoracic lesions. Hypotonic or flaccid bladder occurs more in sacral lesions. Hydronephrosis is found in 7 to 30% of infants. 
Urinary incontinence occurs in 95% of patients with spina bifida, detrusor sphincter dysenergy in about 50% of patients, and calcinosis is common with proteus urinary tract infections. With our multidisciplinary clinics, we often had urologists come by and they would do or have done uh, renal ultrasounds prior to the visit. With regard to the bowel dysfunction, there is autonomic innervation of the colon, rectum, and internal anal sphincter. Voluntary somatic motor and sensory nerves supply to the external sphincter, S2 to 4, occurs via the penetral plexus. Most children with spina bifida have fecal incontinence, about 80% from poor rectotone, as well as absent cutaneous reflex response and perianal sensory deficits. In lesions above L2, intact spinal reflex arc can maintain sphincter tone despite absent uh, rectal sensation. Independence with toileting and myelomeningocele is the number one delayed self-care task, often present until 10 to 15 years. The presence of a bulbar cavernosis or anocavernosis reflex has been associated with a greater chance of bowel continence. Obesity can also occur, often due to reduced daily expenditure and lower metabolic rate. Precocious puberty, uh, secondary to premature activation of the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis from increased pressure of the hypothalamus, occurs in 10 to 20% of cases of of myelomeningocele with hydrocephalus. This can include breast and testicular enlargement um, in those less than 8 to 9 years of age instead of the usual 11 to 11 and a half. There is an associated short stature due to growth hormone deficiency. Treatment includes gonadotropin-releasing hormone analogs, although data on growth hormone are controversial. Intellectual function, uh, there's three times higher incidence of low IQ scores in children with spina bifida. The intellectual function correlates inversely with the level of spinal cord dysfunction. The higher the lesion, the lower the IQ. Concentration and attention deficits are related to hydrocephalus, although hydrocephalus alone does not exclude normal cognitive uh, uh, function. However, its complications, such as repeated CNS complications with meningitis, can lead to significant cognitive deficits. Higher scores are achieved on verbal tasks than visual and visual motor tasks. Um, Moving on to treatment, neurosurgical treatment, including repair of cystic lesion, is usually performed on the first day of life with resultant uh, lower mortality. So if you have it, get it done right away. Of these, 75 to 85% require shunting for hydrocephalus, and the average revision rate of shunting is 30 to 50% in the first year, 50 to 75% for the second year. Nearly all shunts are revised by age 5 years of old. Uh, for urologic treatments, neurogenic bladders are seen in all patients except those with a very low sacral lesion and may be partial in low, num- uh, low lumbar or high sacral lesions. Renal ultrasound is used to define anatomy in infancy as early as 2 weeks old. GU malformations associated with spina bifida, although rare, can include hypoplastic kidneys, horseshoe kidneys, renal agenesis, and urethral duplications. Intermittent catheterization should begin with residual volumes greater than 20, uh, greater than or equal to 20 mLs. Independent self-catheterization can be achieved at the age of 5 to 6 years with boys learning intermittent catheter, uh, catheterization more easily than girls, secondary to anatomic differences. 15 to 20% have uh, vesicular re- uh, urethral reflux at birth. So that's a question that I've seen asked before. When can you start cathing or self-cathing? About five to six years old. Um, pharmacologic management includes anticholinergics that decrease detrusor contractions and enlarge bladder storage capacity, as well as alpha-adrenergic agents that increase outflow resistance. Surgical measures may include bladder augmentation using the ileum or colon or suprapubic ves- uh, vesicostomy and artificial urinary sphincter. Culture and sensitives and sensitivities are done initially at six-week intervals, but can be lengthened up to six-month intervals if symptom-free. 
Long-term goal of bladder management is to prevent renal damage by preventing infections and reflux. Orthopedic management, including spinal deformities that occur most commonly in thoracic lesions with 80 to 100% of patients affected by age 14 to 15. Kyphosis may be structural or paralytic. Structural scoliosis may include vertebral anomalies such as a wedge or hemivertebrae. Uh, block vertebrae, uh, block vertebral, etc., and can occur alone or in combination. Scoliosis occurs secondary to loss of truncal support and is seen in 70% of patients above L2 and 40% below L4. Treatment of spinal deformities, mild scoliosis with a TLSO and regular follow-up. Rapidly progressing scoliosis can uh, be concerning for a tethered cord, which you'd want to check for, which can cause rapid scoliosis and require surgical correction. Uh, gibbous deformity may uh, require kyphectomy. Hip dislocation and pelvic obliquity are common in paralytic scoliosis. At the hips, bilateral dislocation without restriction of joint mobility is best left alone. Um, unilateral dislocations or asymmetric contractures may be treated as these can lead to pelvic obliquity, uh, difficulty sitting, and decubiti. With regards to the knee, flexion or extension contracture of the knees are most common in thoracolumbar lesions. Knee flexion contractures less than or equal to 20 degrees are generally well tolerated in the ambulatory patient, and serial casting can be tried. At the knee, soft tissue release of flexion and extension contractures may increase mobility and allow sitting or bracing. Osteotomies may be necessary late if shortening of the neurovascular bunder has occurred. Tibial osteotomy uh, for severe tibial torsion may be helpful. You don't see as much of the uh, femoral head issues here because those tend to be more in spastic issues or upper motor neuron issues, and uh, spina bifida tends to be a lower motor neuron issue. With regards to the feet, you may have common deformities including equinus or equinovarus or calcaneal cavus and rocker bottom feet. Rigid club foot is associated with thoracic or upper lumbar lesions. Posterior transfer of tibialis anterior is performed at uh, greater than eight, uh, five years of age for calcaneus foot deformity. Aquinas deformity is often treated with Achilles tendon lengthening. Flexor tenodesis, or transfer of plantar fasci fasciotomy, is used to correct severe claw toe deformity in pes cavus. Bowel, uh, bowel management with training and time bowel programs may be initiated at two to three years of developmental age, about the same time you would be looking at uh, potty training in an individual. Peristalsis and gastrocolic reflexes are usually intact, making postmeal evacuation most successful. Additional useful measures include stool softeners, bulk additives, suppositories, PR enemas, digital stimulation, and manual removal. Surgical options include anterior grade continence enema and colostomy. Something interesting is that there is a latex sensitivity occurring in 59% of children with spina bifida and 55% in children who face multiple surgeries or other diagnoses. Predisposing factors are atopic disposition with known allergies, multiple surgical procedures, and previous frequent exposures to latex-containing gloves, non-surgical equipment, or toys. Diagnostic tests include serum immunoglobulin uh, E, IgE, antigen-specific for rubber, skin pinprick uh, test, and radioallergisorbent uh, testing. Children should be carefully screened for any type of allergic reaction to latex, there is a 500 times increased risk of anaphylaxis in the operating room for children with spina bifida. I remember uh, talking with one of my attendings about this who's been working in pediatrics for a while, and they, for whatever reason, maintenance decided to paint the walls in their clinic with a latex paint the day before a spina bifida clinic, um, which is not a, good, not a good combination there. 
Motor development in spina bifida is something that's tested on frequently and is important to understand. During the first six months, motor development is close to normal with children attaining head control and hand play. From six months to 12 months, delays become obvious requiring adaptive equipment. Uh, children with thoracic lesions usually roll by 18 months uh, with compensatory strategies, and many with mid-lumbar deficits and all with L5 or sacral lesions get up on their hands and knees to crawl. T12 lesions allow trunk control, and children with mid-lumbar lesions can usually sit with some delay and increase lordosis. If L4 to 5 is spared, the child can sit spontaneously or normally. Some prognostic indicators um, include the level of neurological impairment that influences the expectations for functional outcome and prognosis. So at T12, um, you're t you have totally paralyzed lower limbs. You can stand with a brace or wheelchair at school age, and at adults, it's typically a wheelchair. And in adolescence, there's a wheelchair with no ambulation. Um, L1 to 2, your hip flexor muscles um, may be present. At school age, they may, be, uh, may have crutches or braces or wheelchair. Uh, adults may have wheelchair with household ambulation, and adolescents may have a wheelchair with non-functional ambulation. At L3 to 4, quadricep muscles may be spared. Crutches and braces or household ambulation and wheelchair may also be considered for all of these. At L5, medial hamstring and anterior tibial muscles may be spared. Um, crutches, braces, and community ambulation can be considered. At S1, lateral hamstrings and peroneal muscles are spared, which leads to communal ambulation. And S2 to 3, you may have mild loss of intrinsic foot muscles, but ambulation is typically spared and can be normal. Um, children with thoracic lesions require assistive devices for passive standing, usually started at 12 to 8 months. Assistive devices may include a parapodium, which allows sitting and standing, a swivel walker, HKFOs with spinal extensions, and either walker or left strand crutches. Gait pattern is established from as low as drag to as high as swing through. Lower thoracic and lumbar lesions often require devices such as reciprocal gait orthoses used after age 3. Tension is created by forward stepping, which generates an extension moment on the contralateral hip. Energy requirement is similar to wheelchair mobility. If L3 is spared, the child might be, may be able to use an AFO. Children with low lumbar lesions pull to stand and cruise near, to the, near the expected age. They walk around two years of age with Trendelenburg lurch and gastrocnemius limp. Functional community ambulation is realistic. The mental age of two to three years is a prerequisite to learn crotch, uh, crutch walking, not crotch walking, crutch walking. The low thoracic lesion and upper lumbar lesions may achieve crutch walking by age four to five. Uh, with low lumbar and sacral lesions, bracing is usually not required, but patients may benefit from AFOs if plantar flexors are spastic or non-functional. Thoracic lesions... Uh, with regards to functional community ambulation, thoracic lesions are typically from 0 to 33%. High lumbar, 31% can, uh, can achieve some degree of community ambulation. Low lumbar, 38% achieve functional ambulation at less than 15 years age. And 95% of functional ambu uh, community ambulators are 15 to 31 years old. For sacral lesions, all are able to achieve functional community ambulation. Factors or predictors for ambulation include sitting balance and motor level are early predictors of walking, Deformities of the spine and lower extremities and obesity are unfavorable factors for ambulation. 
Training in wheelchair use can uh, begin during the second year. An electric wheelchair is recommended at school age for a child with adequate cognitive function and emotional maturity. Uh, with regards to outcomes for spina bifida, referral to preschool programs at age three years is legally mandated for children with disabilities. Most children with spina bifida complete high school with 50% continuing to further education. Independent living is achieved by 30 to 60% of those with spina bifida in the United States. The employment rate among those with spina bifida is 25 to 50%. Conception is possible in women, however, frequency of premature labor is increased. Male sexual function is, pres is present in L5 and sacral deficits with reproductive potential related to lower and less severe lesions. The incidence of spina bifida in offspring with one affected parent is 4%, and neurologic cases are responsible for around 40% of deaths between 5 to 30 years, with survival during this period falling by 3% every 5 years. So that sums up, that wraps up the uh, spina bifida section um, and the cerebral palsy section.